You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. We're a film criticism show who are going to be with you for the next hour. My name's Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined, as always, by Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. And we have a special guest host with us tonight, Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Alex is a film writer who contributes to Overland Literary Journal and since 2003 has contributed to a, a range of other magazines, journals and books, as well as writing three of her own. Rape Revenge Films, a critical study, found footage horror films, Fear and the, and the Appearance of Reality, and an upcoming book on Dario Argento's Suspiria. Alex, welcome to Plato's Cave. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. I hope I don't bring the tone down. I hope it doesn't become Plato's cubby house, <laughs> Plato's tuck shop. And you've got quite a focus and interest on sort of bodily horror and feminist theory and gender studies. I think long-term listeners of the cave will know that he's so <laughs> right up our alley. I think we're going to have fun. Alex, you're going to be joining us for the next few weeks. Looking forward to Starting it. Starting with tonight. Uh, we've got three films for you tonight, which we're going to discuss at length. We're going to start off with a big one, the latest film by the Wachowskis, Jupiter Ascending. This is a large-scale space opera that explores the nature of humanity, genetic engineering, fate, destiny, and what it really means to love dogs. We're then going to head over to New York City in 1981 for a most violent year. This is the new film by J.C. Chandor. Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain play a husband and wife who have very different ideas about what it takes to make their business succeed in order to achieve the American dream. Uh, then we're going to come back to the present but head over to Paris for Eastern Boys. This is the new film by writer-director Robin Campillo, who's perhaps best known for writing the 2008 Palme d'Or winning film The Class. Eastern Boys begins as something of a home invasion film before evolving into something quite different. But before we get to all that, we're going to subject you all to Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, yeah, look, maybe we're going to do some of you a bit of a favour here and... Uh, <laughs> Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> look, the hope, hopes were high-ish for the new film from the Wachowskis, uh, Lana and Andy. Um, whether seen in 3D or 2D, I would wager that most people's patience out there will be sorely tested by their new film, Jupiter Ascending, which is, uh, if put into a nutshell, could be summarised as a lot of sound and fury signifying nine-tenths of fuck all. <laughs> I mean... I thought, that was on the poster, I, wasn't it? I, I, <laughs> Great taglines of our time. Well, look, I, I found this so uh, such a tedious uh, experience that I really... I, I considered sugarcoating my feelings about this, and then I thought, no way. Yeah, this we'll, is, uh, I think we got the impression we're not. We should say, you're out of all of us back when Cloud Atlas came out, you, you weren't on the show when we reviewed Cloud Atlas, but you were quite uh, in favour of that film compared yeah, to the rest was, of us. I was in the minority, and yep. I think this film uh, sorely misses the uh, influence of Tom Tyquer, who was uh, the third in the uh, triumvirati that brought Cloud Atlas to the big screen. Landy, uh, Landy? Lana and Andy uh, <laughs> definitely needed somebody to just uh, take them to one side with this film and say, look, folks, um, 
A, a film needs to be more than just uh, a bunch of stuff that happens, to paraphrase a memorable Simpsons episode years back when uh, I can't remember which of the family members was asking the others, what is the moral of the story of this episode that just happened? And Homer wisely said it was just a bunch of stuff that happened. That's what this film feels like from go to woe. has no uh, real sense of drama. Do you think, I mean, the extraordinarily dramatic things are happening. Jupiter Jones, played by Mila Kunis, is... Um, well, she's born dramatically out at sea, uh, an analogy for her status in the universe. Seemingly, she is between worlds, uh, a Russian born en route to America. Why she's Russian or her family are Russian is something that I didn't quite pin down. I mean, this film raises more questions and it, well, it doesn't actually answer any of them as, as a rule. She winds up in Chicago. Um, before terribly long, she's whisked into outer space by Channing Tatum, who's just totally phoning in this uh, performance too, after being so impressive in a number of films recently. Uh, likewise, Eddie Redmayne. In fact, Sean Bean, there's, there's some great people in this cast and all of them just lumbered with utter drivel to spout from the very outset of this film to the, to the end. There's not a hint of profundity. There's barely even a hint of um, just common garden variety sense. A whole hell of a lot of stuff happens and none of it is of any import whatsoever. Discuss. Yeah, it's such a scatterbrained approach to narrative and storytelling. It, it felt a lot like, I think I used the analogy, that it feels like a child, like a young child telling a story and there's just that, that series of ands and he's a werewolf and he's from outer space and then he meets this person and then that person meets that person and they, they don't like each other. Oh, no, and then they do again. And it is just this series of kind of almost non-secretors and this sort of scatterbrained rambling, not just in terms of the structure of the narrative, but tonally it's all over the place. It tries to have these deep, serious, dramatic moments with this mawkish, kind of overly sentimental score, and then it plays almost to kind of fart jokes of the realm of sort of fifth element, so that sort of scatological humour. I think I could have ultimately forgiven this film if it had been fun, if it had been of that kind of Flash Gordon ilk, if it had actually committed just to being playful, but because of the just the inconsistencies across the board, you know, scripting, um, even the visual effects. We, we criticise Michael Bay a lot on this show, but I I think it's it's fair to draw a pretty clear link between what the Wachowskis have done here with Jupiter Ascending and what Michael Bay has kind of cemented his career doing, and that is just you know grandiose action set pieces without any context in terms of narrative or character development. The whole thing is just like you said, series. It's sound and fury, but it doesn't have a kind of substance. And I just think, look, if you're looking for a space opera, go back and rewatch Guardians of the Galaxy, which had all of those elements, but just seemed to kind of nail it as opposed to this one. This film, to me, felt that it was 20 years too late. It's, it's the most cutting-edge blockbuster of 1995. <laughs> the Wachowskis are writing fan fiction to themselves, and, and friends don't let friends do that <laughs> yeah. on multi-million dollar film projects. It's, I'm, a, I'm a Wachowski civil libertarian in the sense that, honestly, I don't really like what they do, but I passionately defend their right to do it because I believe that they come from a genuine place. I think that they, they really believe in the potential of cinema. I believe that they have a vision that they feel is pursuing, um, which is fine as long as it's not on my watch, yeah. Wachowski is, is, is sort of my, my sense. It's a stupid and euphoric film, and I'm fine with stupidity and euphoria, but I need the euphoria to drown out the stupidity. And in this case, it just didn't happen. It's a... I mean, it's a... 
it's a daggy film, and I say that knowing that daggy is a really daggy word. <laughs> but it's, I mean, not only is this the most cutting-edge blockbuster of 1995, it's also the daggiest blockbuster of 2015. I had contact embarrassment watching this. It, it does feel like something that would have been direct to VHS in, in the 80s, but with a massive budget. Yeah, I, I just got no joy from this film. I, I think I would have enjoyed it if it was a bit sillier and a lot more, more fun, if there were some more interesting ideas. I couldn't understand why the character kept on doing what they did. I couldn't work out why one character would be a villain in one scene, not the other. Like you said, Josh, it's like they were just making, make, really making these up as, as they went, which sometimes, like we saw with the Lego movie, can be exhilarating and fun when it's clever and, and, and smart and witty. But this was just so so adolescent and, and, and so so dumb. I've heard a few people sort of say this is a sort of one of these glorious mess films with big ambition that doesn't come together, and they've compared it to things like David Lynch's Dune, which I think is really outrageous. Because having rewatched Dune recently, it is a film that doesn't quite work. But there's some amazing ideas and thought and intelligence in there. And that film does long linger, even though it wasn't entirely successful. This, I don't think we will think about this film in a week's time. There is no longevity for this film whatsoever. Yeah, I'm not sure how as filmmakers you could go from something as taut and tight and sexy and and coherent like bound that which is a wonderful film and that kind of that sort of 90s neo-noir and then to go to a i guess a bigger scale action film like the matrix which you know even though it has pretense of of profundity with sort of the baudrillardian sort of framing device deep down it's just a really good action film to 176 million dollar travesty i mean i think maybe they work better when they have restrictions like the kind of small budget of bound yeah this film is just groundless it just flounders about wildly from the start to the um, much too late and coming finish it's just a borderline unbearable <laughs> and um, I uh, honestly am just flabbergasted I haven't had a, a, an experience like this at the cinema for, for quite some time and uh, e- even as I watched I did stick around and watch the credits roll and noticed that Terry Gilliam had been in there I didn't even notice that and that didn't redeem it any uh, apparently he played Seal and Signet Minister. Well, in, in that scene, that seems straight out of Brazil. It was yeah. just a random scene. It's like, oh, we want to have a deleted scene, but it's going to be in the film and it's going to be our ode to Brazil. And oh, look, Terry Gilliam's going to be in it. Yeah, and apparently um, one of the uh, the Abrasax uh, dynasty figures, the, the evil villain types in there, uh, lived on a fictional ruby planet named Cerise. I didn't even pick up <laughs> the, my own name featured in this. I was drifting, drifting off so heavily throughout this whole ghastly travesty of a film it's just awful oh dear Jupiter Ascending I think we all went in with an open mind because we are all curious about what the Wachowskis are up to but uh, this one didn't work for any of us you're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. you're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne Australia Let's talk about A Most Violent Year now, the film that this song is used in at the opening credits. Yeah, so this is from director J.C. Chandor, whose previous films were All Is Lost, the Robert Redford Lost at Sea, and Margin Call, which is one of those films that came out a few years ago and seemed to be part of that global financial crisis trend dealing with stockbrokers at the moment of the of the crisis. And he has distinctly a, a noticeable style, particularly encompassing this film, which is a slow, measured pace, character-driven drama, basically. It's a 
it's a style that reminds me a lot of current sort of cable television in many ways. And this film feels a lot like it could have worked as a like an HBO serial in, in some ways. It's set in New York City in 1981, revolves around Oscar Isaacs, who's a an oil businessman by the name of Abel Morales. And he's a businessman with a difference in terms of 80s New York because he's trying to go legit in a, in a business that's increasingly corrupt and run by mobsters and mob intervention, which is why I was almost tempted to describe this film as a gangster film that isn't, because it keeps trying to deal with the tropes of the gangster film, and Morales as a character is not too dissimilar from um, the types of characters that we've seen in any number of sort of Scorsese and Coppola gangster films set around in and around this time, and yet it repeatedly refuses those tropes, particularly when it comes to violence, and one of the key aspects of this film is he doesn't want to engage violence as a way of propping up his business against the imminent threats from all around. This film really reminded me of, of two other kind of key uh, films on the waterfront, and it's there in the in the setting, but also in the idea of, of having a character like we see in Marlon Brando in that film who is sort of struggling with his relationship to shady businessmen in the case of the of the mob in that one but really decides that he needs to do the right thing and the other one which is even more overt is the godfather part three i've seen other people i think thomas you may have said this this is the this is the film that godfather three should have been and in many ways it is because you have a lead figure who wants to be legit and he doesn't want to sacrifice his morals he wants his family to be safe he wants to kind of go it alone i think this is a really taut drama i think this is a really sort of polished film i had a couple of minor quibbles but in terms of violence because i thought i felt that the film sort of stuck to its guns for such a long time in terms of this character and refusing to to indulge the kind of audience desire perhaps the genre desire for for bloodshed and and vengeance and then perhaps uh, without giving too much away the ending maybe slips from that um, mantra a little um the other interesting thing which is also related to violence in this film is the jessica chastain character because unlike most genre films it's the the wife that is the gung-ho violent one and she's definitely sort of pro-gun pro-violence pro hitting them taking them to the mattresses uh but that subplot seems to die about halfway through the film and doesn't really sort of follow through and i thought that was something that could have been really fascinating in the context of of gangster gender and, and genre films she is an interesting figure in this film uh not, not only is she a little thirstier for blood you might say but she's um oh, i don't want to spoil uh, a particular plot twist in the film but she's um she's 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 well it's made clear to us that she's from a criminal background her her dad's doing time um and we, we get the picture pretty clearly that she's from a mob family but uh yeah she's she's cunning she has a, an actual animal street cunning and for all that her husband uh wishes to to keep to the straight and narrow, uh, well, at least within the confines of standard industry practice, which comes up a few times. I mean, it's made pretty clear that the whole industry is is crooked, but only, you know, some operators are only merely as crooked as some of the others, whereas some of the others are, are clearly mobsters. Yeah, there, there is really interesting morality here thrown in with the whole business throughout the Godfather films of the the immigrant uh, immigrants chasing the great American dream and uh, struggling because if they have any degree of uh, personal morality and any sort of ethical outlook on running a business they're going to find that challenging from from all directions and even uh the law which might be trying to crack down on them in this case here you know it it might be a little compromised itself too um, but one one other thing I thought I'd bring up, just while you're talking about uh, other things that you, you felt the influence of, you felt or at least uh, an affinity with HBO dramas, Josh. I I got a, a little hint of um, uh, an influence from the films of Jean-Pierre Melville. Um, this real sense of this uh, you know, quite 
taciturn characters, uh, occasionally given to expansive gestures and the odd tantrum, but mostly this sort of measured pace and people going about their business, dressed quite suavely, um, sometimes in, in, in inhospitable terrain, uh, with the odds perhaps stacked a little against them, but somehow this sort of, uh, not exactly a samurai ethos, as in Le Samurai, but I, I could picture Alain Delon within this film so easily. Um, and look, it would have been great if he had <laughs> had a cheeky, cheeky little cameo because you can never have too much Alain Delon. I think for me one of the interesting... Um, other factors that this film is in, converse- in conversation with or in dialogue with. So it's in dialogue with gangster films. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of dialogue going on, I think. It's never smug or glib about these references. It really, there's a kind of fluid engagement. Um, but with film noir in particular, not just of the 1970s, the kind of urban noir specific to the time that this film is set, the late 70s, early 80s, but for me, right back to 30s, 40s, 50s film noir, um, especially in, in in relation to two factors, I think. First of all is the driving obsession or fascination with masculinity in crisis. These men trying to find moral equilibrium in a world that is chaos and their realisation that that just isn't the way that the world is. Um, and that was just a driving force. If somebody told me that this was a remake or a reimagining of a film by Jules Dassin with Robert Ryan or Robert Mitchum, um, uh, Dorothy Malone, I wouldn't flinch. I wouldn't hesitate to doubt that. The other factor, again, leads back to uh, Jessica Chastain, who I think is remarkable in this film, and I think she is a femme fatale. I think she's um, a really interesting reimagining of the femme fatale in that she's a mother. She's a kind of sexy mum with a taste for blood. I think she's... I confess a a love, a deep love of of Chastain. I think that she brings a gravity to any film that she's in. She's very, very classical Hollywood to me. Um, you, know, you can see her in a black and white film, you know, Garbo, um, you know, Greta Garbo, uh, Marlena Dietrich. But also, I think in this film, she's channeling stuff from the 70s and 80s. I could, you could whack her in a time machine, send her back in an Angie Dickinson wig to star alongside Lee Marvin in something, and I don't think anybody would battle an eyelid, except perhaps for the time travel factor. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I absolutely adore Jessica Chastain. I'm with you completely on that. And I think this is a part that needs a really strong actor to rise above some of the cliches that a lesser actor may have put onto a role like this. Because I think it's a really... It's a difficult role because it's a character that... Um, it's interesting that you're describing her as sort of uh, almost a revisionist femme fatale because I, I was very conscious of the fact that she wasn't operating like a typical woman in a gangster film. I mean, by no means is she the airhead gangster's mole, but by no means is she the sort of complicit wife, like we saw in like The Sopranos, the wife who outwardly says this is wrong but hap- happily lives on all the wealth. Um, and because the context of the film, I think, is in a way some of the biggest criticisms of the film is on Abel, the Oscar Isaac character who is so crushingly naive about his own success. Um, you know, his belief that the good that's happened in his life is because of his hard work and luck. And... You know, even though he is a good man, he's a horribly naive man, and she almost, in the context of this, comes out as the most sophisticated, maybe even moral character, because in this world she sees it how it is. And, and there's a few scenes where she tears him down from his moral high horse in a way that's actually quite satisfying. Even though he's the sympathetic character who you side with, I think she's the one who cuts through all the bullshit in this film. I th- yeah, extraordinary actor, extraordinary character. Um, 
And I'm loving this conversation. I mean, I, I did think of Eli Kazan when I saw this film. Definitely knew Hollywood. Uh, a lot of critics have compared it to Sidney Lumet's, uh, Lumet's films. Um, I think that's particularly because Sidney Lumet used to work with Al Pacino a lot, and we've sort of got a young Al Pacino being channeled in Oscar Isaac here. But yeah, the, the nods to Jules Dassin and Jean-Pierre Melville, I think, are absolutely spot on. And maybe that's why, critically, this film has done really, really well, because it is a film buffs, film lovers film. The, the, the kind of callbacks and references to classic cinema are in there, but it's not show-offy. Yeah, oh, look, I, I love this film. I, I love the measured pace of it. I, I love the fact that I kept on waiting for it to explode in some kind of conventional gangster moment. And what few moments of action you do get in this film are so exciting and exhilarating, and I think it's because they're sort of held back that when you get those moments, and they're sort of executed in such a smart, clean way, I... Yeah, the more I th- this is one of those films that's really stayed with me. The more I think about it and talk about it, the more excited I am. And from a visual point of view, like it's a stunning film. It's a really beautiful I was going film. To say exactly the same. Yeah. Thing. Can I just ask? Was it really dark when you saw it? it because was. I was conscious of it looking very dark. Mm. Oh, not, not it's, it's Bradford Young. I don't know if you Bradford yep. Young did this straight before. I think just before. I've got it in my notes here. It certainly makes just sense. Just before he did Selma, it's the same. It's the same cinematographer as Selma. He did them back to back. That's wow. Um, which I find fascinating. I mean, I, th- I think they're both. I mean, this guy. If there, there needs to be an award for being able to f- photograph David Ayuello perfectly because that's what this guy does that's what his talent yeah. is but this is a really beautiful looking film it doesn't feel like a hollywood studio set that's trying to be new york even though i should should mention because i noticed this in the credits that the um the very rundown new york and and new jersey that we see often um i think one of the opening scenes we see oscar isaac actually running through the neighborhood maybe it was to that marvin gaye song yeah, it, was, played. Yep. Um, it was actually detroit so maybe detroit <laughs> is stand in rundown new york in well, decay detroit now is what new york was in the early 80s so i suppose that's a very very good location to do a rundown capital city. Well, Jim Jarmusch, kind of, yeah, well, he nailed that, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and how about Albert Brooks? Too yeah. easy to overlook his performance, yeah. but it's so understated. Someone who, who made his mark initially as a, a stand-up comic, and here he's, he's, he's just fantastic. I, I almost failed to recognise him until the, the credits at the end reminded me that, to look for Albert uh, Brooks in my memory for what I just witnessed, because he's... I, I just didn't pick him. I hadn't seen much of him for a long time. The last thing I saw him in was Drive, where his character was quite different again, you know, quite mouthy and, and potty-mouthed. And, uh, and here he's, he's very measured, quite sinisterly so. He seems, uh, his character, exorbitantly well-connected, and he seems to know how to play everyone off against everyone else. Um, and something we haven't discussed yet is the, the Jewishness of this film, and how integral that is to the narrative as well, that this, this particular bit of prime real estate is owned by uh, a Jewish, I'm not sure, a consortium, is it's a bit unclear, but it's, it's clearly very, very uh, specifically Jewish, even to the point of making it clear, and a sort of comical scene, but a bitter scene where um, uh, Oscar Isaac's wife's excluded from the, the scene. Her signature is needed for a, a transaction to go down. I, I found that all quite fascinating because that's not something I'm so familiar with um, in the crime. There's film. an episode of The Sopranos that does it, actually. Looks oh, I haven't at seen the, the, that. Yeah. Um, what, what, what do you call them? The really orthodox... Hasidic? Hasidic, yeah. yeah, where they look at... This, an organised 
Hasidic family. That there's yeah, there's a very funny and typically clever Sopranos episode that looks at that. And yeah, so it was interesting to see that sort of rise up again in this film. I guess that's, that there's a real emphasis on the immigrant experience. Um, and apparently, this was happening in New York. Sort of all the Anglo-Saxons were moving out, and there was a whole new wave of um, immigrants coming in. And and I believe New York at that time was a bit of the wild wild west because a lot of the old structures and sort of you know silent deals that were done with crime families and city officials and police no longer existed so there was a huge turf war going on it sort of came up in that film we reviewed last year too its name escapes me right now it starred tom hardy um oh, yeah. oh, what on earth was that called the, the james uh, gandolfini film yeah yeah oh, speaking boy. of sopranos connections the drop. The, the drop. yeah the drop yeah. again uh, uh, that was a during a transitional period too where different uh, ethnic groups were making their the presence the Chechens. um <laughs> yeah it's uh, but I can't even remember what period that was set in. I think that's I more contemporary. contemporary. Yeah. yeah, I mean that was the kind of the next wave of, of almost yeah. kind of gentrification of, of Brooklyn and, and so on. Um, it did. There was a point early on in this film when we hear the character speaking his native tongue to some of his co-workers, who we get quite subtle references to that he's sort of worked his way up from being a driver in this oil business to, to being sort of running it. And it reminded me a lot of Scarface. I mean, quite. Um, intentionally, I think, but without the manic Al Pacino screaming and kind of cocaine fueled violence that, that that film crescendos into, as much as we love um, De Palma, who we were talking about off air, actually. <laughs> but yeah, again, that, that immigrant experience would seem so particular to this city at that time. And I think also the I mean, we haven't really dis- discussed it. We've talked about oil in a kind of general way, but the fact that they emphasise heating oil, one of the first things you see, one of the first pieces of text in the film, is the truck that says standard heating oil. It's such an aggressively banal subject matter. It's such an unsexy <clears throat> booty that yeah. it lies at the heart of this, and I just love that. Again, feeding back into that film noir thing, the, the ubiquity of corruption, that something as, as ordinary as heating oil has has kind of provides the base of such drama and such action i find really fascinating i love that it's about heating oil that really appealed to me when i was watching this film it's also a detail that helps i think give this film a sense of realism and 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 brings the kind of often operatic crime story into the very mundane and 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 urban um i've been fascinated by the way the yeah i love gangster films and the 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 the, usually anti-capitalist allegory that you get in in gangster films and ever since the godfather there's sort of been this attempt to remove the romanticization and make them more raw and 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 real and you know goodfellas was one of the next high points and then the sopranos took it down another level, took a lot of the glamour out of that. But this goes even further, I think, and I think it's that incredible lack of actual violence. These aren't people walking walking around whacking each other and, you know, clipping each other and chasing up their vigs and all that sort of stuff. This feels so close to a legitimate business world with just that kind of, yeah, that, that murky sort of toe in the pond they all have of crime and this kind of this stench that Oscar Isaac is just running from and I think the message of the film is he's kidding himself yeah, that murky middle ground is the the, is the moral ambiguity, which is so fascinating. And I don't think we've seen something like this for a while that hasn't decided to sort of to easily just sort of jump into the pond of being another traditional gangster film with pretenses. Otherwise, I think you know, I think, and maybe that's why that comment I made earlier about the end, that, the ending, feeling a little unsatisfying because it feels like finally it wants to wants to have it, or maybe it was pressured to have it. But I think almost it would have worked if there'd been a bit of more of ambiguity or without giving too much away. 
That ending, though, does provide a beautiful visual metaphor. I know. That um, kind of sums up the whole <laughs> film that you couldn't have got otherwise. No, that's true. We've been talking about a most violent year. I think the consensus here is this is one you should be making an effort to go and see. It's sort of, yeah, American cinema at sort of its finest. Three, triple, ah. Plato's K film criticism here on 3RRR. You're listening to Thomas, Alex, Josh and Cerise. We're going to now have a look at Eastern Boys. This is written and directed by Robin Campillo. It's only the second film he has directed after 2004's They Came Back, which I haven't seen, but I believe... Alex, you've seen oh, that? Yeah. Do you want to very quickly tell us what the deal is with it's, that film? It's a remarkable film. Cerise, have you seen it? Did I see no, it with you? foolishly, I, I missed this... Um I, I wasn't riding the, the crest of the zombie <laughs> the redux wave. wave. Well, yeah, it was one of that sudden wave of zombie flicks, wasn't it? He, uh, he was out here for it for MIF, I believe, in 2005. It may be 2004, but my f- memory serves. Yeah, we'll, we'll just screen at MIF in 2005 then, yeah. Yeah, and he came out for it, and it's a remarkable film. Um, until Eastern Boys, I would have said that I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, I'm now quite the Campillo fan. The premise is effectively, it's, it's a zombie film, um, in that the dead rise from the grave and take over a community. The way that the thing that makes this film so magical is that it's played straight. It's like he's never heard of the horror genre. So the opening scene is a beautiful sunny day and it's just people getting out of their coffins in the clothes that they were buried in, just normal people getting out of their coffins and looking confused. So what you really end up with is all of these people going back to the houses that they lived in before they died and people making up couch, you know, beds for them on the sofa and not really knowing what to do with them, you effectively end up with a, a social issues drama about refugees. That where the film falls down, ultimately at the end, and I think it's a first film issue, is that it, it does go back to horror. It's a curious film. That does sound curious. And for a while there, I was thinking, how is this the same filmmaker who made Eastern Boys? But you mentioned the social uh, realist refugee allegory, and now it makes a lot of sense. Um, Robin Campillo, though he's probably better known, as I said at the start of the show, for writing uh, Lauren Cante's film, The Class. Oh, actually, writing most of his films. They've collaborated on a huge number of films. But The Class was the big one for them both. In 2008, this one, The Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival. And The Class was very much distinguished for its documentary-like realism, which Campillo employs here, uh, especially for the first few chapters of Eastern Boys. And it's divided um, into the, sort of these the, the, these parts with, with titles for each part, a bit like chapters. Um, having said that, I'm not really too sure why what that does to the film, but there we go, that's a detail. It begins with this almost surveillance-style footage of a gang of boys and young men hanging, hanging around a Gare du Nord train station in Paris. And this is one of the major train stations in Paris. It's used for a lot of international travel. A lot of people from other countries come into Paris at this train station. And, and the way it's shot, the film it really encourages us to feel uneasy about these boys. And look, they are acting suspiciously. They do that thing where it's this exaggerated casualness they employ that feels quite menacing. Although we don't really know for sure what they're up to. I, I was curious going back and analysing my assumptions about who they were and I was just assuming they're there up to no good they're looking for targets to steal from um, but none of their dialogue is subtitled it's, 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 it's a French film but it makes sure we don't, don't understand what they're saying to each other because they're not speaking in French they're speaking in a range of Eastern European uh, languages and I'll, I would say right up even until close to the end of the film this 
plays upon the growing xenophobic fear within a lot of Western European countries about people from Eastern European countries. I think I was really unsure at times at points where this film was going. I think ultimately it does sort of conclude that there is, you know, criminal elements do infect these communities and and mostly exploit people within these communities rather than outside people and, and makes the perception of everybody bad. Wow, that was horribly expressed. What I'm trying to say is a handful of bad apples basically spoils everything and a lot of the, the stereotypes about these marginalised people are based on the worst elements. I think that's where that film ends up. The main story is about Daniel. He's a middle-aged French man and he picks up one of these boys at the train station, a boy who tells us his name is Marek. Um, Daniel and the audience aren't even too sure how old Marek is. There's a good chance he's underage. Marek convinces Daniel to go to Daniel's apartment for sex. Um, And this results in Daniel getting completely screwed over by the gang, uh, who, again, use this really menacing, overt, faux casualness and, and politeness to do what they do. It's quite a startling and really captivating sequence. Uh, and then, and I'm not going to just describe the whole film to you, but, but, but then as it unravels, Marek returns to see Daniel, and the pair basically develop a relationship that's really unsettling because we don't know who is the power over whom. What are they getting out of this? What is each one getting out of this? Is one going to screw over the other one? Where is it going? What does this say about sexuality uh, ethnicity and power. So I really enjoyed the ambiguity of this film for the most part. It reminded me a lot of some of Michael Haneke's films. Uh, just it's uncomfortable. There's an incredible political subtext going on. It lost me right at the end, though, and I'm going to be really curious to hear what you all say about this. The final half hour for me was a big letdown because I, went in, I thought it went into completely generic terrain to the point that it made me think of Pretty Woman. Um... I still found this a really entertaining and engaging film, but I was really mystified and disappointed by the ending. I, I love this film. I, I, it is just one of the most difficult viewing experiences I've had for quite a while. And I've, I wrote a book on rape revenge feel. I feel that I'm saying that from a place <laughs> that's pretty, pretty serious. I, I really... I was so uncomfortable. There was never a point in this film that I had any sense of being okay with what was happening on the screen in front of me. There was never a point where its morality was clear, Hmm. where I knew who was being exploited and who was the exploiter. Um, It's deeply intelligent, deeply upsetting. It's probably the best film that I never want to see again. Um, I I really, really loved it. Um, I I think what I appreciated the most about it is dealing with this idea of illegal immigrants and this kind of sexual politics as well. Is that there's, it never resorts to the kind of patronising, lazy, hand wringing. Um, there's no pearl clutching. There's no, you know, it's it's a very frank film. Um, I I really struggled with that last half hour for very different reasons. Um, hmm. I because I had no idea where it was going, and and I, for me it felt like in that last half hour was where the the morality that I'd been trying to cobble together, the moral universe that I felt that I could construct, completely fell out from under me. That the, the supposed happy ending at the end of that film is repugnant and deliberately so. I think I don't think that's a spoiler. No, that's interesting. No. Actually, it makes me think that maybe I was meant to feel the way I did, and I've mistaken the intent of the film with uh, the message. I felt very much like you. About <laughs> I needed it to. Ending. I needed like the steel wool shower. Like it was serious. Oh. 
I was I think I had the the radar up of, of where in terms of the morality is this film going to fall thinking it would fall on, on one of those the black or white because they'd been dealing in the grey for most of the film and I, I think it just got greyer I think the the end really kind of leaves this um, this question to the audience about morality and ethics and the treatment of, of immigrants and does the does the, the care for one outweigh the needs of the many? I mean, without trying to give too much away, I think that's probably the best way to, to put that. But I found this film incredibly troubling as well. And I think the reference to Hanukkah, I mean, something I jotted down as well, the palpable sense of the invasion of space when Daniel's apartment is invaded by this group of young men and a couple of women as well who have kind of interesting roles within that group as also was felt straight out of funny games in terms of that that um, sort of abject reaction of horror that I, I felt and also um, cachet would be the other one that immigrant experience that vicious kind yeah, of absolutely finger pointing and the fact that the film finishes with uh, a single long take which again is kind of rife with ambiguity both those films have very similar structural kind of connotations um, but yeah the way this film deals with space that was the probably the most interesting part of the thing that's fascinated me for the, for the early parts of the film because we move from this very mid-shot distance camera work at the opening that you mentioned Thomas within the the guise of the train station that feels almost like surveillance we're not sure who's doing what who's following what what their motivations are and then the film relocates for quite a large section of the film to the um, the interior shots within Daniel's apartment and you get this strange play between the private and, and public spaces between this sort of sense of insulation and isolation and, and middle class alienation as well and I thought it's interesting that the final act of the film moves out into this strange intermediate space where it's sort of public but it's also private as well and I thought I thought that was so fascinating in terms of some of those other themes that it dealt with in terms of the way it applied this idea of space or explored space and you know how refreshing to see a film which is unsettling on so many levels and yet homosexuality is not something problematized <laughs> in it it's uh it's actually a really steamy film I found this actually pretty hot stuff you know and um and and uh, I think that's part of the reason of the power too of the film why why it is really unsettling when you're trying to make sense of the power relations between this couple. I mean, clearly there's a chemistry there, or at least every uh, appearance of it. Um, there's, there's nothing about the actual act, the sex acts, that is problematized in this film. It's just the context within that their relationship is placed. Uh, in with respect to his presumably uh, fairly safe conventional middle class life and Marek's uh, life as part of a, a gang where where we, we learn of course that even his role within that gang is, is problematic that there's all sorts of dynamics at play there not least that there's um, an extraordinary character the boss of that gang played by uh, Daniel Vorobiov is this psychopathic but extremely charismatic but intriguingly vulnerable character he's, he's utterly compelling i think he's the most compelling thing in the film i, I agree i agree yeah um so yeah, i think it is a tremendously powerful film and it does do something very strange with about half an hour left to go uh yeah, in a way it does follow some generic uh conventions closely but i think definitely critiquing them and it's interesting that there's another ethnicity brought in as sort of an observer mm. of those scenes too someone who is um sort of empowered she's an authority figure of a sort within this particular space but she's also not you know a high up and i think it's very telling that that she is there i don't really want to quite give away terribly much but it's uh, the, i think she is sort of our um our point of view for that last little passage until the the um yes a very droll uh finale 
I am um, just going back to funny games, um, which I think is especially when we talk about these sort of generic influences. I mean, uh, they came back. I think does the same thing in that it it teases you. It gives you enough familiar generic anchors to kind of hang on to that you think you know where you're going and then it deliberately rips them out from under you and it's constantly disorienting and if you combine that with the material that he's dealing with it's quite confronting and quite distressing but um funny games i think is a really useful point of reference for this film because it opens up you know ostensibly only part of the film is dealing with this home invasion trope but it also reminds me a lot of the current debate surrounding the new eli roth film with uh, keanu reeves that just premiered at Sun, Sundance. 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 <laughs> do we have a do we have a preference? Sundance. Sundance. I've never thought about it, and now oh, I'm going to be obsessed with it. it. Is this the, that, the cannibal one? No, this is Knock Knock. This is a oh, home yes, invasion the, film the, yes, where the, um, new, new, yeah. Keanu Reeves is yep. a, um, a kind of supposedly good husband, and there's these two young sexy things who would do a home invasion thing, and it's all about you know will he or won't he and. Um, you know, sexual politics, and in a way that's really what is going on partially in, in Eastern Voice too, this sort of issue of sexual politics and home invasion. And ultimately these films, I think, are useful to frame discussion, but at the same time it feels a little bit like me, uh, for me, like talking about The Virgin Spring, Berkman's The Virgin Spring, and Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, in that there's clearly terrain that overlaps. But I, for me this film is doing something really out there on its own, um, totally unique. I think you're actually beginning to convince me to reconsider, actually. This is, this is good stuff. Thank you. <laughs> I reckon what happened to me... I, I do think that final segment does get quite generic and it does go down the heroic character rescuing the vulnerable character. And I think I turned on the film because of that. And because I turned on it prematurely, I didn't miss the very final mm. detail of the film, which now I think back to it, then pulls the rug out of your I'm, feet. I'm obsessed with that style. factor. That yeah. very final moment which i just went uh, uh, i think actually is what redeems the, the issues i had with the final segment um so yeah i, I might actually stand corrected and say this is a, a better film than i thought it was having talked it through he well, even the the quote-unquote villainous character we get to see a kind of a side of him and i think one of the crucial one of the crucial details here is the use of subtitles because mm-hmm. for the first two-thirds of the film we're definitely on side with daniel we hear the french we don't we have no idea what you know whether they're speaking Russian or Ukrainian or, or you know those those other languages, we're barred from that, and I think that's a really important detail. But that in that last act, we move into the the space of the kind of Eastern boys, and we're given a side of them through the subtitles. I think the filmmakers asking us, we have to identify with these people as people now, and I think that was the one of those kind of key details that withholding that for such a long time and then bringing us into that world to see them as as humans. The shifting sympathies in this film is fantastic. I mean, even in the home invasion scene. Yeah, not too sure where you sit with that because it is intimidating for Daniel to have these people invade his home. But Daniel, as the audience knows, this is happening because he's done something really dodgy. He's picked up and paid a boy to have sex with him who could possibly be underage. And yeah, and even that sort of gang leader character, you're right, all throughout the film, he's a menace, but we also see real vulnerability to him and he's really likable too. Yeah, it's a terrific film. Yeah, can I just throw in yeah, Freud? Please. We've got time for a bit of Freud. We've always got time well, for a bit of Freud. Of course. I mean, in terms of the sexuality, I think it's fascinating that the trajectory, the other thing is the trajectory of their relationship, which begins as very cold, very transactional, and becomes far more intimate, which again, 
isn't isn't uh, isn't an out for the audience. It doesn't make it easier for the audience. If anything, it makes it more difficult to watch. And then it raises the questions about Marek's past. And we get a patent scene, which is the return of the repressed, where he's just described the bombing of, of his hometown and the fact that Daniel clearly doesn't care for it. And then that wakes him out of a dream where we see fireworks going off in the background, which are clearly meant to mimic the bombs going off. I thought that was a really, really remarkable sequence. I'm going to revisit these some boys. <laughs> You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. I'm Thomas Caldwell. We had with us Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard as always and a big thank you to Alexandra Helen Nicholas for sitting in tonight. You want to come back next week? I want to come back next week. It's been swellegant. (laughs) Well, you've just earned a place next week. We would love to have you. Uh, Jupiter Ascending is on general release through Roadshow Films. The Most Violent Year is also on general release through Roadshow and Eastern Boys is screening at Cinema Nova through Palace Films. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.